Thank you, Rob. And good morning, friends. Good morning. It is really, really good to see you here today. A special welcome to you. If this is your first time here with us or your first time for a long time, we're really happy that you're here. My name is Sandy, and I was actually supposed to preach this sermon a few weeks ago, but then I had COVID instead, which is not in itself a very interesting story. You know, I was sick, and now I'm well, and I'm really thankful to be well. Uh, but being the millennial that I am, I made a little Facebook post about it, just to remind myself that even though it was disappointing and discouraging to be sick when I had planned to be preaching and going to conferences and hosting youth events, but that time to rest and to pray and to remember that the world goes on perfectly well without me was something to be thankful for too. So I made this little post and I have to tell you the immediacy with which I had soup delivered to my home. And I'm not talking a little bit of soup. I'm talking soup and then more soup and then even more soup and then cupcakes and then some more soup. And I am very thankful, both because I was encouraged by your care for me, you loved me very well while I was sick, and I was also thankful because I lacked a sermon illustration to go with this message, and you created one for me, so thank you for that. Over the past few weeks, we have been working together on a sermon series called Better Together, thinking about what it looks like to be a community of people that loves each other really well. As the people of God, loving one another is fundamental to who we are and to what we do. And when we do it well, when we are in right relationship with God and with each other, we become something more than what we are. We become a witness to the world around us, a testimony to the grace and the love that we have received from Jesus, something that changes lives and neighborhoods and communities. If you've been around Rivercross very long at all, then you have probably heard Pastor Rob talk about the vision that we have for our church. We want to be people who are so rooted in the presence of God, so shaped by our relationship with him, that we overflow like a river into our city, bringing with us the life that comes from knowing Jesus. So in this series, we have talked about what it looks like in actual practice to be those people, and we've learned that it looks like bearing one another's burdens, admonishing one another, spurring one another on in our faith, and today we are talking about what it looks like to answer the call of Scripture to encourage one another. And I've pulled just as a sample verse here for you this one from the book of 1 Thessalonians. And I am a little bit of a language nerd, and the word encourage is an especially interesting one to me, particularly as it is used in Scripture. One of the reasons that we here at Rivercross are better together is that together we speak a multitude of languages, more than I could fit on one slide, but even just on this slide this morning, we have Tagalog and Spanish and Mandarin as well as English. And I love that, not only because we love you, but also because English doesn't always do the best job at translating the Greek or the Hebrew of the Bible. English belongs to a thought world that is really different from the one in which the biblical authors lived. And so occasionally, our English words will provide a really flat or hollow or one-dimensional interpretation of what the biblical authors are trying to say, just because it doesn't have the right words. This is kind of what's going on with the word encourage as we read it in an English Bible. And if you are here and you speak a different language and you think that it translates this word better than English does, I would really love to know that. It would make my whole day. The Greek word in question that our English translations render as encourage often is parakaleo, 
and its noun form encouragement paraclesis. And bear with me, I promise this is going to be really interesting, okay? Uh, but parakaleo is a nice compound verb. It's made up of the preposition para, which means alongside, and kaleo, which is a verb that means to call. And like all language, its meaning depends on the context in which it is used, but it really does kind of carry with it the meaning of calling out from alongside of. So its semantic range extends from comforting and consoling to encouraging and strengthening to teaching and instructing to imploring and beseeching. It's this big, full, robust word. And we're going to unpack what it means for us by looking at the life of Joseph the Levite from Cyprus. And if that name is not familiar to you, that's because nobody ever called him that, because instead they called him by his nickname Barnabas. We first read about him in Acts chapter 4, and to set the context for us a little bit, we're going to start reading in verse 32, where we're peeking in at the life of the early church. And it says this, All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything that they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money to the, from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement or son of Periclesis, sold a field he owned, and he brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So we meet Barnabas in the middle of just this beautiful picture of the people of God really acting like the people of God. They were of one heart and one mind. They shared everything that they had. They thought of their possessions not as their own possessions, but as resources to be used by God to love people well. And it can be hard, I think, to read this section of Acts and not feel a little bit of guilt or embarrassment or to long for this idyllic moment in history when God's people finally figured it out and life was perfect and they were getting everything right all of the time. But if we step back a little bit and take a broader view of this scene, then we'll see that there's more going on in this picture. The events that we read in Acts chapter 4 are happening not too long after the death and resurrection of Jesus and the political and social and religious situation in which the earliest Christians lived was unstable and explosive and marked by a steady rise in persecution. But really early on in the book of Acts, we see a pattern begin to emerge. As persecution increases, the presence of God increases. As trouble grows closer, God draws nearer to his people. And so it is that we read at the end of the Gospels, when the disciples are hiding after Jesus' death, the risen Jesus appears to them. When Jesus ascends into heaven and the disciples are again gathered together and unsure about where they will go, the Holy Spirit meets them there and fills them. And they are given power and boldness to speak, and many come to faith in Jesus as a result. And then as the church continues to grow, persecution continues to follow as Peter and John are arrested and warned with threats to no longer speak about this Jesus who is causing so much social disruption. But then again, as the pressure rises, the presence of God binds and unites the earliest believers together. 
But when Peter and John are released, they all gather together and pray, and Luke, the author of Luke and Acts, records for us that in answer to their prayers, the room where they were was shaken, and they were freshly filled with the Holy Spirit, with the result that they spoke the word of God boldly. And Luke, I think, is really keen that we don't miss this pattern. It isn't that these people were somehow better than all other people had ever been in the whole scope of human history. It isn't that they had figured out all on their own how to be brave and faithful. It's that they walked in step with the Holy Spirit who bound them together and made them something more. They had received the grace of Jesus. They had known the power of his resurrection. God the Holy Spirit had taken up residence among them and as they walked with the Holy Spirit, they were made to be like Jesus. And this truth then was demonstrated in action. So when we read in Acts 4 of this group of believers who had experienced the transformative love of God in Jesus, their economic sharing was just an outward expression of the fact that they had been inwardly changed. And then we're introduced to Barnabas as the positive example of this in action. And the first thing we learn about him is that he is all the way in. He owned land, and so he sold it. And he gave all of the profits to be used to care for those in need. And land in the Greco-Roman world was not a small thing. It was about more than just its financial value. Ownership of property was tied to status and social clout. It was a right that was afforded to a really privileged minority. And as such, it was a symbol of Barnabas's respectability. It even would have afforded him some political and social protection in an increasingly volatile political and social climate. But Barnabas would rather have Jesus. And so he sells his land uh, and he brings it to the apostles to care for his brothers and sisters because everything he has and everything that he is belongs to Jesus anyway. Barnabas is all in. And because he is all in, he is given a nickname among the apostles, son of encouragement or son of periclesis. There's that parakaleo word that I am stuck on. And given the trajectory of the book of Acts in which the Holy Spirit guides and directs and empowers and emboldens the early church and by his presence among them shapes and forms them into a new kind of community, I am reminded of another person who was nicknamed for the the, the verb parakaleo. And as much respect as I have for Barnabas, this other one was nicknamed first, and he embodied it better. We read in John chapter 14 a farewell speech that Jesus gives to his disciples as he prepares them for the events surrounding his death. And in the midst of the difficulty that they're about to face, Jesus gives them this hope in John chapter 14. If you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. All this I have spoken while still with you, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have said to you. There's that parakaleo word again, where I said the word advocate. And some English translations will say advocate, others will say advocate to help or comforter or helper, or counselor, someone who will call out to you from right beside you and stay there forever. If you've ever heard of the Holy Spirit being called the paraclete, this is where that comes from. 
We just don't have the right English word to say all that it means for the Holy Spirit to enter our lives and then stay there. Too big of a thing. But if we come back now to my friend Barnabas, the son of Periclesis, and try to put together what it means for us to encourage one another well, I would like to offer a new definition for his nickname. The son of Holy Spiritness, and suggest that if you and I are going to encourage each other well, if we're going to show up in each other's lives and not leave, then we need to walk closely with the Holy Spirit as the first step. I cannot be all in for you unless I am first all in for Jesus. I can't be of one mind and one heart with you unless I am first of one mind and heart with Jesus. I can't share everything that I have with you unless I have first acknowledged that everything that I have belongs to Jesus. I can't speak powerfully or work powerfully in your life or in mine unless I have first been changed by the power of the resurrected Jesus. In order to encourage one another well, we need to first be daughters and sons of Holy Spiritness who are all in for Jesus and are living out of the power of the Holy Spirit. And then Luke emphasizes this for us by immediately following the example of Barnabas with the example of Ananias and Sapphira at the beginning of Acts chapter 5. Their story parallels his almost exactly. Like Barnabas, they are landowners. Like Barnabas, they sold their property in order to give money to support those in need. Like Barnabas, they brought their gift to the apostles to distribute. But unlike Barnabas, they kept back part of the money for themselves, and they lied about it, and so they died. This really sad, stressful story that happens here, and the problem isn't so much with the size of their gift, it's with the heart and the lie behind it. The intention to be seen as people who are keeping step with the Holy Spirit instead of actually keeping step with the Holy Spirit. Luke is reminding us here that you're either all in or you're all out. And when we find ourselves feeling that really it would be so much easier to just walk our own way, or really we would rather just offer a portion of ourselves to Jesus instead of the whole thing, we need to bring our hearts back to him. We need to know his love and his grace again. We need to remember that all that we have is his to use and ask again for new boldness and new power to be daughters and sons of Holy Spiritness. And as the narrative of Acts goes on, we continue to meet our friend Barnabas a few more times. If you're familiar with the book of Acts or with the life of Paul, then you're also familiar with how Paul came to faith in Jesus, and it's recorded for us in Acts chapter 9. He starts out this chapter breathing out murderous threats against the disciples of Jesus and heading to Damascus to arrest any believers that he might find there so he can bring them back to Jerusalem as prisoners. But then on the way, he is stopped by the risen Jesus, and his whole life is changed. He is all in. And eventually, he does make his way back to Jerusalem, not with any prisoners, but with the intention of joining the disciples there and participating with them in the work that they were doing. And then right smack dab in the middle of this story, we meet Barnabas again. And if you're reading quickly, you could really easily miss him, but I think it's quite important. Paul, who at this point in the text is still called Saul, tries to join the church in Jerusalem, and the disciples are having none of it. And in their defense, 
a mere 25 verses ago, Paul was still breathing murderous threats against them, and they were afraid. They didn't believe that Paul had really been changed. But then look at what happens in verses 27 to 30 of this chapter. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, and he told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord, and that the Lord had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them, and he moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So Barnabas interceded for Paul, and as a result, Paul was accepted among the disciples. And he ministers freely in the city of Jerusalem, and he was so successful there that his opponents rise up and try to kill him. So he has to evacuate and head home to safety. And what I think is so interesting about this is that this is the second time just in this chapter that this exact thing has happened to Paul. Because immediately after Paul came to faith in Jesus, he uh, tries to join the church in Damascus. God sent a disciple named Ananias from Damascus to go and get him and bring him back. And immediately, Ananias says, there is just no way. He says this in verses 13 and 14. I have heard many reports of this man and all the harm he has done to your people in Jerusalem, and he has come here with the authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. Paul's trying to join the church in Damascus, and the believers in Damascus are having none of it. And again, in their defense, a mere 12 verses ago, Paul was still breathing murderous threats against them, and they were afraid. They didn't believe that Paul had really been changed. But then God interceded for Paul. He told Ananias that Paul was his chosen instrument to proclaim his name to the Gentiles and to their kings and to the people of Israel. And as a result, Paul is accepted among the disciples in Damascus. He ministers freely in the city and is so successful that his opponents rise up and try to kill him. So he has to evacuate and head to Jerusalem and the same thing happens all over there. Luke loves to write this way, using parallel stories and structures to show us how it is that God works and moves in the lives of his people. We saw it earlier in the juxtaposition of Barnabas with Ananias and Sapphira, and we're seeing it again here in these two halves of chapter 9. And what I think Luke wouldn't have you miss from this is that Barnabas, the son of Holy Spiritness, does for Paul in Jerusalem the same thing that God does for Paul in Damascus. He intercedes for him. He goes and he gets him. He stands beside him. He speaks up for him. He enters meaningfully into Paul's life. And if you read the rest of the book of Acts and even into Paul's letters, then you will see that Barnabas remains a consistent, intentional presence in his life throughout his whole ministry. And I think this is really crucial to what it looks like to encourage each other well. It's first rooting ourselves in Jesus and then following the lead of the Holy Spirit to do for one another what the Holy Spirit does for us. Here's where our word study pays off. This is what encouragement looks like. It's being present. It's bringing soup. It's seeking out. It's calling out gifts. It's creating opportunities. It's praying for each other. It's speaking truth to one another in times of uncertainty. It's calling one another. It's sending one another. It's supporting one another through temptation or trial. 
It's coming alongside. It's knowing Jesus really well. And then in knowing him well, loving well. And as we do this together, as each one of us supporting one another seeks to be all in for Jesus and then all in for each other, we become people who are one in heart and one in mind, who share everything that we have, who testify to what Jesus can do. We become the people who live as though we are doing for each other what the Holy Spirit does for us. And God uses this, and he makes us into something more. He makes us a new kind of community, a witness to the world around us, a testimony to the grace and the love that we have received from Jesus, something that changes lives and neighborhoods and communities. So I wonder if you would pray with me this morning as we seek to be these kind of people together. God, we thank you that you have come to be with us. You have shown us over and over and over again that when trouble draws close to us, you draw even closer. You are our constant help, our source of life, our Lord and our God, and all that we have and all that we are belongs to you. So God, we ask that you would help us to walk ever closer to you, to be so rooted in our relationship with you that it characterizes our relationship with others. Would you help us to love each other as you have loved us, to be present with each other as you have been present with us, to intercede for each other as you intercede for us, to come alongside one another as you have come alongside us. Would you give us power and boldness to live as sons and daughters of Holy Spiritness, and make us into a new kind of community that changes the world around us with the life that comes from knowing you. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.